Uh, this is Boots on the Ground podcast, and I'm your host, D-Blex Lesalon. As we celebrate Madaraka Day today, I'm so excited to be speaking with Raymond Owino. Raymond is an early career conservation biologist with a major focus on the conservation of large mammals in East Africa. His current research work involves studying giraffes' diet, habitat restoration, and human-wildlife conflict. Raymond holds a bachelor's degree in wildlife management from Masaimara University and a master's in biology of conservation from the University of Nairobi. Raymond will be starting his PhD studies in wildlife management at the University of Arizona in the fall of 2023. I hope you enjoy this episode and learn something. Karibu, karibu sana. A very good evening uh, to you, Owino Raymond. Uh, thank you so much for joining us uh, on the podcast uh, today. Karibu sana to the show. I'm pleased to be part of your guest. Uh, let's do this. Thank you, Raymond. Uh, Raymond, uh, to start us off, could you tell us your story, how it began uh, versus how it's going at the moment? So as a kid, I was just good at biology. Uh, we spent most of our time traveling from place to place. But I never thought anything about this because at the time, we were just following my dad where he was, he was going to. I remember some of my earliest memories were in Tuckwell, where there were these large herds of elephants uh, that we used to go and look at. At the time, my brother was the one who we thought would work with the Kenya Wildlife Service then, yeah. because he, he had this big behavior of trying to drag all sorts of animals to our home, including monitor lizards, but that in locally, we know that monitor lizards are not a friend of chickens as much. <laughs> so uh, we thought that he would do this because he also had a passion into joining the service uh, service. Uh, police or something like that yeah so at those moments I never resonated with the fact that I was going to do conservation but along the way all I knew was biology that I was good at it and I did well in campus in high school and when I joined campus I was called to a course that I never chose by then yeah and then I had to struggle through first year and fortunately first year wasn't really pleasing Second year came along and I wasn't really doing well either until I got to join my uh, first, I went to my first uh, attachment that I did at Mara North Conservancy where then I started realizing that there was much more to this course than I had anticipated before. And then I started having this passion of doing GIS, going through, going to help uh, solve human wildlife conflict collecting data on on say poaching on those kind of activities that are involved within community conservancies when i went back to school i started realizing that this course is the same thing that i had passion for i was passionate about biology and i knew that that would be my future but in an african home that will lead you to being say a doctor or something yeah Fortunately, I never got the points to go to do a, any medical course, and I was thinking probably I would have done nothing, but that wasn't help, wasn't, uh, did not materialize because, because we were not that well off at the moment. Having nine kids in a family, it's financially straining. Sure, sure. So here, here I am, a few years later, I'm doing conservation and I'm passionate about it. 
I've been following wildlife and conservation from all parts of the world, all parts of Kenya, because I'm very passionate. Uh, past few years I've been in Garissa, mostly through volunteer, and to just be honest, I haven't ever been employed formally as a conservationist. Uh, most of my time I've been volunteering yeah. and going through conservation in dangerous parts like Garissa. Great, thank you so much for that brief uh, overview of how you began and I'm glad that you've mentioned um, how it started actually following your dad around and your brother having this uh, passion yes. and uh, fast forward to when you were in school, you know, uh, getting to do a course that you hadn't chose. Uh, Raymond, it looks like it was a blessing in disguise per se. <laughs> um, how... how 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 were your were your parents? Uh, how how did they play a role in you, uh, getting in this field? Uh, considering the fact that your dad might have that background of you know traveling and, uh, sightseeing and you know becoming passionate about natural resources, biology. Quite the contrary. Uh, my dad is an electrical engineer, and uh, this was. Mostly inadvertently, he was traveling to places because he was working in Kenjin by then. And then he was posted to Kenjin in Takwell. By then, the station was still operational before the, the clashes between Trukan and Pokot in 2002. Uh, but before that, he used to travel from one station to another because yeah. his role by then wasn't as populated as it is these days okay so he used to travel to different stations just trying to help those those are uh, trying to help Kenjin and to do whatever they were doing by then so in my case I thought my parents would want have wanted me to do something along the engineering yeah engineering lines and I also did well in physics and so my dad was like oh we should do instrument and engineering something like that but all I knew was that I don't struggle with biology as much. I would be good at physics or mathematics, but that wasn't where my old passion resonated in. Along the way, being called by government to do a course that you never chose yeah. to a university that never had any other options for those prestigious courses they wanted, I had to settle for whatever course I was going for. And as I told you earlier, I wasn't as passionate as I was before, as I am right now doing this course, because I felt I was being pushed towards something that I never wanted to do. What grew that passion? So, uh, my first, if I recollect properly, I'm always passionate just about animals. I just never knew that I would work with them. Yeah. Uh, we had this neighbor when we were in Tuckwell who had kittens. And who had a cat and it was it gave back to kittens. Yeah. And by that time she was called Auntie Betty. We called her Auntie Betty. She was a nurse. Mm -hmm. She gave me one of the cutest cats. <laughs> she gave me one of the cutest cats, and this was so cuddly cat. Just kept purring and sleeping alongside me at night. And then something happened. Auntie Betty left, left for this night shift and all those kind of uh, those kind of. Trips, they always go, nurses always go to different places, yeah. maybe to help another hospital. And then the neighbor's kid lied to me and exchanged one of the cats because this other cat was bigger. This cat ran away and I had no bargaining power to get any other cat because 
we had swapped. <laughs> we had swapped. <laughs> I cried for some times and then my brother... You did? Got, yes, wow. I cried. I was still here and my brother found me a dog. Yeah. <laughs> found me a dog. I called his dog Mary. <laughs> uh, fortunately, the dog survived. Yeah. I carried it home to my rural area in, uh, in Siaya. Mm-hmm. It grew old and died at old age and that was when I started feeling that if I recollect now, that was when I was felt that I was into animals. Into animals. Then I had wow. this. Yeah. I had this habitual. Uh, was also I was also in the habit of just herding cattle. Yeah. Milking cows and just tending to animals. Basically, I was good with animals, but never thought of it as a career. Awesome, yeah. awesome. Let's switch on gears now and talk a bit about the challenges that you encountered along your journey. I'm sure a lot of young people listening to you right now and. Um, uh, how you started, you know, and uh, you doing volunteer work, as you've mentioned, you've never been employed formally in this field of conservation. There are many young people who want to like venture into conservation, but they don't know how. Do they have to do like biology? Do they have to do conservation biology? Sorry, all these courses, you have to dress like this, speak like this for you to be considered a conservationist. Okay, Raymond, uh, please take us through the challenges um, of being a young conservationist in Kenya and uh, basing that experience in, in the field over the years. I'll give you my story about this. I don't come from a predominantly conservationist community. I'm from the lake side where we do mostly fishing, although we can consider fisheries as a way of conservation. But... Conservation in terms of terrestrial terrains and landscape conservation wasn't something that I knew existed in the first place. But when I came to this course and when I came to this field, I started realizing that for us in biology of conservation, one, it meant that we would be researchers and, and research conservationists. It meant that we needed to generate evidence that conservationists will use to conserve animals. Yeah. For this, you'll want to have, say, a master's degree or a PhD so that you can be considered as a researcher. An undergraduate, a bachelor's, you don't really qualify to be a researcher in any case. But that is not even the major challenge. The major challenge comes in that getting career, getting a job in conservation is not that easy specifically if you come from developing countries. There are those who, who already are existing in, this, in those are communities and those who actually have degrees that are suitable for those kind of jobs. Yeah. And for us, it will mean that you'll have to gain experience through volunteers or even if not volunteers, internships that are very hard to get in this, particularly in Kenya, and then you'll have to put in the hours, you'll have to put in the hours, learn things, learn things that might put you on top of other people that might give you advantage over these other people because you're coming into a community that already have, has people doing conservation. Yes. By right, it's, they have the, all the right to be part of the conservation because they live with these animals. But... As a young conservationist and you're trying to venture into research and conservation, it will mean that if you're not employed, then you have to do research, you have to do research that you don't have funding for. So some of the challenges is one, you need to get a job that you cannot get, but if you want to get a job, you also need to have an experience. 
that you don't have. Yeah. So it will pushes you to a career, it pushes you to a life of volunteer where you'll have to volunteer and if you know anything about African homes that once you attend university, it means that you are you automatically or in some cases if you come from a poor background, you automatically becomes the siblings way of life. Sure. You have to take care of your younger siblings and take care of just your home generally. This will mean that volunteer positions are not attractive to any early career conservation. Because they are unpaid? They are unpaid and most of the time you put in a lot of hours in very hard in hardship areas that you wouldn't normally go to. Sure. Yes. So the other challenge is that say you've overcome this and you want to do research, then you have to overcome another hurdle of trying to find funding for doing your research. And funding the way they're set up is that there's no a lot there's not much funding for early career conservationists. Very few organizations, as a matter of fact, offer limited amount of funds, and rightfully so, because this is your first say research that you're doing. You hasn't you haven't proven to anybody that you know what you're doing or you can be trusted with whatever resources they'll give you. Sure. But that challenge goes just beyond the fact that they don't trust you. It comes down to the fact that you are being you're competing for international uh, for these small opportunities and grants that are internationally competed for and you are not natively English or speaking or in a position to speak better English than some of these people, some of the people that are applying for this. Yeah. You'll be competing with people from different countries with different backgrounds and probably way diverse in terms of like resources that they have been investing in education. I find myself in a situation whereby if you have to proceed, if you have to succeed in conservation, then you need to have somebody, a mentor, that is not within your country, say somewhere in a different country completely. Yeah. For one, if you are to apply for a grant, then you will need to have references, at least some from your country and at least some that are not from your country. Yeah. That way they can actually say that this is a person on a good career path and mm -hmm. potentially has some future in conservation. Yeah. Yeah. So you have to skip the hurdle of English not being your first language. Sure. After which you have to skip the you have to skip another hurdle of knowing somebody that is not within your country or is resided to in a different country, probably which you have never met, based on your poor background. Uh, let's not say poor background particularly, say uh, impoverished in some way. Yeah. It means that you have to work a little extra hard than a normal, uh, let's say, student in a different country that is developed or middle-class middle country, yeah. Mm -hmm. Thank you, Raymond. Thank you, Raymond. Uh, before we talk about, you've mentioned a very interesting point there of lack of funding, yes. you know, uh, to, uh, in terms of grants and we have to look outside for us to, you know, access these funds. And uh, before we talk about how we can unlock local funding, uh, Raymond, um, do you have any tips and tricks that you can share with a young person listening to you right now who would want to like break into this uh, sector, but they don't know how, they don't know who to talk to, where to go. They are fired up about conservation. They want to make a difference in their communities, but they view this as it's out there. It's very hard for me to get there. 
what are some of the tips and tricks that you have used yourself and or you have encountered along your journey? The best way to do this is first try to build your network. However small it might be, you might not know what that connection will bring you. Uh, my chance and my being in conservation was propelled by very small chances that I had from just getting a training opportunity to train with a, to train with a and non-research scientist. That gave me an opportunity to meet somebody that is currently my mentor called Dr. Jesse Alston. Uh, if you put yourself in position where you can meet people beyond your, say, level of education, beyond your level of career by then, because there are people who are ahead of you, then you place yourself in position to actually get benefits that you might not have anticipated. Yeah. Mentorship in this career is very essential because oftentimes you never get to know exactly what you want to do once you're done with campus. Most of us who graduated from campus, we graduated 21 of us, only three at this particular moment that you're speaking are still actively in conservation. And why is that? First, conservation is not well paying when you begin. Second, getting a job in conservation is harder. Third, say you want to do, like I said, individual research, then getting funding for that individual research is harder if you're not attached to an organization or attached to individuals that already are established within that, in that uh, field. Yeah. Some of these challenges has prompted me, among other students that we are now dealing, I'm now working with uh, in, from the University of Nairobi, to kind of bring together young conservationists and try to mentor each other in a way that there are things that I might know. Say it's about technology and conservation. I probably know how to, now that I've been to Mara Elephant Project and I know how to automate uh, multiple things using Ecoscope. Yeah. I, there are things that I might know in terms of analysis, grant writing, and just reporting in general and conducting field studies that other students that are now graduating don't, don't have those kind of skills. As young conservationists, we are trying to break the barrier of four, trying to find an older, an older conservationist, say more experienced conservationist, yeah. which in most cases, they're never receptive of young people because, because if they see us as these kind of people that are trying to replace them rather yeah. than people who are trying to join them and build on the, on the knowledge that they already have. We are trying to figure out to figure out how to build each other's capacity. If one of us is trying to do some research, I have the knowledge of doing grant writing. I'll try to guide them through these processes and get them towards close, something closer to being perfect, if, for most cases never perfect, but highly competitive to ensure that they can get this grant. Yeah. Otherwise, we, stand, we don't stand a chance against other people who have mentors and in most cases, you hear something called gatekeeping in conservation. Yeah. Those established in conservation usually, in some sort of way, prevent young conservationists getting into the scene. By the time you are into the scene, or by the time you've stayed in conservation, 
you've been worn out enough to f- just try a different career path completely. Wow. Yes. Wow. Thank you so much for sharing that. And Raymond, you've traveled Kenya. You've yes. traversed, you know, uh, counties. You're from Siaya. Mm-hmm. Now you're in the Mara. Kenya is a, is a land of immense natural beauty. And when you talk about conservation, we are talking about our wildlife. We are talking about culture. We are talking about our national heritage. Mm-hmm. Uh, what opportunities lie for young people in this field? So, there's a lot of opportunities, but most of which will want you to engage, engage with the local, engage with the local community. There's an opportunity in terms of say community conservation, because seventy percent of our life lies outside protected areas. Yeah. If you want to make an impact, you don't necessarily have to be a cons- to go to school to be a conservationist. It can start from very basic things, say you just organize your local community to just collect snares. These are things that befall wildlife in in our local areas. Say there was a project that I was doing in Garissa and this project involved farmers giraffe conflict. So along these farms, there are people or poachers that places uh, snares. If you want to create an impact, you can just start by just collecting snares from these farms, going around and telling, trying to tell the farmers on how to prevent, to prevent diversion by giraffes just in a parsimonious way that they don't, they don't hurt the giraffe, yeah. but they actually help conserve this kind of giraffe. Uh, by so doing, we'll be getting closer towards cons- realization of conservation and a lot of species that are endangered in Kenya. And now the government has plans of you know planting 15 billion trees in 10 years. That's also an opportunity. That is also an opportunity. We've seen regreening initiatives also yes. in Nairobi, in the slum areas. Yes. You know, uh, young people shunning crime and you know, joining the bandwagon of pro-conservation initiatives. And that is where uh, I think young people, as young people, we need to look at and, you know, put in our efforts and our resources. Yeah, thank you so much for sharing that, Raymond. Um, and uh, thank you so much for sharing also about Garissa. I'm very interested in hearing your how your experience was there. Um, many of us here at Garissa, we see it in the news, but have never really you know, got an, an opportunity to, to be there. Uh, tell us uh, briefly about your experience there, about the wildlife, your research, the people, you know, uh, the food. I'm sure there was a bit of, you know, you coming from Nairobi and Siaya also. I'm sure there was a bit of uh, <laughs> a challenge, a change, yeah. yeah, a change, you know, a change in weather yes. and that, how that affected you. Take us through that. So before we talk about that, uh, you talked about opportunities that I never mentioned that uh, one of the things about opportunities in conservation specifically for those who are doing say biology of conservation those with some a bit background in uh, in education for this conservation uh, while there are fewer organizations that are willing to give you grants it is uh, there are those conservation organizations such as the Conservation Leadership Program yeah. that offer grants to young conservationists, they call it future conservationists, where they award teams 
the award teams who have the potential to grow and become conservation leaders in conservation. So how I get, came to Garissa, I started by volunteering at a project called Hirola Conservation Program. Then during my time at Hirola Conservation Program, we, we, they conceptualized the idea of Somali Giraffe Project. Yeah. I worked for both of these organizations because they were housed in the same organization. And I started growing passion for conservation of giraffes and generally conservation of endangered species in northern Kenya. Okay. If we talk about northern Kenya, northern Kenya is one of the hotspots for biodiversity. Garissa, specifically, and eastern Kenya, along the Kenya-Somali border, yeah. marks the southern extent of the uh, uh, Horn of Africa biodiversity hotspot. Okay. There you will find species that are not found elsewhere, say like the Hirola, the Hirola itself. It's, so it's a one of a kind and found only in Kenya uh, with approximately 400 left in the world. Wow. Yes. So with my time with the Hirola Conservation Program, I started figuring out that I could be of more service to these species yeah. by doing my individual research. So I organized a small group of uh, young conservationists most of which were working together. Were these local people? Yes, they all were local people okay. from different areas. Uh, some from Garissa and some from Central, another from Samburu. Just different people. Kenyans, generally. Yes, generally in Kenya. Okay. And then we wrote a grant, we wrote a grant proposal to the Conservation Leadership Program. And this was my first attempt for an individual grant. Wow. And fortunately, we got this grant. And the good thing about something like conservation leadership program is that once you receive the grant, they take you as a family and then they train you more. They train you on leadership, they train you on, change, they train you on behavior change, they train you on project management and all these kind of tailor-made courses that enable you to deliver your project to, to the maximum. Yeah. And they seed your grant of up to 15,000 US dollars. Wow. Which, which, if you look at this, this is somebody trusting you for the first time to do a research without knowing how it will go. But if you do it well, you still have opportunity to get a follow-up grant that is worth 20,000 US dollars and that the last grant that is worth 225,000 US dollars. Some of these... These kind of grants are really are very hard to come by. Okay. Are really hard to come by. Yeah. So there was, we got our first grant with Conservation Leadership Program yeah. to tackle human wildlife conflict. Specifically, we were solving uh, farmers' giraffe conflict in Garissa. Interesting. If you know Garissa and parts of uh, northern Kenya, is that water is something limiting for every, every part of northern Kenya. So, in Garissa specifically, there is this one of the longest rivers, uh, one of the longest rivers in Kenya. It's called Tana River that cuts across multiple, multiple countries. But this one specifically borders Tana Tana River County and Garissa. Yeah. And this is the lifeline for all the wildlife, cattle, and people within Garissa. Okay. Initially, and in more initially, and in most cases people from the northern Kenyan eastern side are pastoralists. But that kind of lifestyle is slowly being faced out. And we are witnessing more and more 
pastoralist becoming sedentary and starting to do farming. As a result, we find that in Garissa, along the stretch of River Tana, where was initially the corridors for giraffes and other wildlife to go to the river and drink water and quench their thirst, is now becoming an orchard for mangoes and other plant and fruits. Yeah. This hot climate is really good for, say, mangoes and such kind of fruits if they are irrigated. And in turn, this has created conflict between the giraffes that have now developed a test for the mangoes, specifically when they're flowering, because this is also an area which has experienced scarcity of vegetation in okay. terms of when it changes weather, when the weather changes and there's prolonged drought, yeah. and then there's this lush vegetation along the riverine, which coincidentally, most giraffes also depend on the riverine area for feeding during droughts. Okay. If you go to Garissa, this has become a common thing that it's been subdivided into plots of land and mangoes are lighting the whole corridor of all corridor of River Tana. Is down. it the local farmers doing this? These are the local farmers. These are local farmers based on inheriting land, dividing on first come, first serve basis that are becoming more sedentary. But there are also other commercial farmers, but very few, because Garissa is a volatile area and not most people want to venture in those areas. So, in turn, when giraffe invade their farms and cause this damage, some of the local farmers are not that friendly to giraffe. They retaliate by sometimes spearing them, cutting them with pangas. Sometimes they put snares so that they can just prevent giraffe from doing this. Yeah. And my, our project was trying to find a parsimonious solution, a way just to solve this in a peaceful, to ensure coexistence. Granted that some of the farmers are also within, well, also have the knowledge that conservation is good. And it's something that was very encouraging during our project that the farmers themselves knew that giraffes were supposed to be conserved. Yeah. But they also fed up with the idea that giraffes were, creating, were leading to losses were leading to losses and they wanted something that would help them. We were trying to test some of the best ways that we can try to reduce giraffes from invading farms. Definitely can't stop completely giraffe from going to farms. Yeah. From time to time they'll feel the need to eat something different and they'll smell the mangoes because when they're flowering it's still attractive. Uh, so one of the measures, conservation measures we were trying was use of motion sensors floodlight. Nice. Specifically, because these are rural areas and mostly not with electricity, we're trying solar-powered motion sensors, which, quite unfortunate, they just have a small sensor range, which meant that for you, if you have a very large farms, you'll have to spend a lot to get uh, these floodlights to cover your farm and more like a fence. You're trying to fence your farm out with the floodlights. These floodlights will act as a human Particularly, particularly because uh, you find you find that when they are triggered, whenever a giraffe wants to pass close between the pillars of two floodlights, yeah. it's triggered and it thinks that somebody's on the farm because these farmers are in the habit of using flashlights to actually prevent giraffes from getting into their farms. But because these farms are very large, some of them are really large. We thought about something different again. 
we wanted to try if predator calls, specifically we wanted to try lions, will be able to prevent giraffes from invading farms. Nice, interesting. So yeah, we recorded uh, giraffe. Uh, we recorded uh, lion calls, mm-hmm. and then recorded blank noise, uh, blank noise, in a way that we recorded thirty seconds of uh, thirty seconds of lion call, and then twenty nine twenty nine point thirty seconds of twenty nine minutes thirty seconds of blank noise, so that we can actually place this into a thirty minute thirty minute audio. And then repeated this with a 15 minutes blank silence with a 30 second as well, so that we play this in a loop in a Bluetooth speaker, it's so that it can randomize the way the way these Bluetooth calls, line calls. Wow. To some extent, this was working, yeah. working well. Mm-hmm. And farmers were now starting to think, can we have more of these? Can we get more floodlights? Those who are fancy floodlights told us that they wanted floodlights. Yes. Those who thought that their farms would be better off uh, better off with the Bluetooth speakers wanted Bluetooth speakers. Yeah. And specifically, the Bluetooth speaker itself even helped solve one of the problems that because these farmers used to guard their mangoes at night because the invasion occurs at night, yeah. it was dangerous for them when hippos were also around. But this Bluetooth speaker will deter even hippos from coming out of the water, this other side of the river, and go to the other side of Tunnel River. So it was an experiment that we were trying, and it worked to some extent. At this point, it was an experiment, and we were trying to now launch and see how much more, if we had funding to do this, and do it on large scale, and collect data and see what is successful, and how long does it take for giraffes to actually adapt to the presence of these particular measures that you have placed? Great. Yes. And uh, what were you moving around? Because I know Garissa is a very uh, huge county, and yes. for you to traverse the area you uncover a, a big study area, it must have taken you uh, a lot of time. Um, could you take us through that a bit? When I went to Garissa, I was in hopes of securing a vehicle to do my research uh, because it will be one good good in terms of the sun is really hot so I will be at least sheltered from the sun sheltered from the sun but unfortunately if you're trying to get car hire in Garissa it becomes really expensive if you're moving out of town because Garissa is notorious for insecurity and from time to time, you'll hear that a vehicle has stepped on IED. IED, these are improvised, improvised explosive devices that always just goes off based on maybe pressure pads. I don't know exactly what causes them to go off. But this is a common thing that if you want to hire a vehicle, they will ask you, where do you want to go with our vehicle? Because if you're traversing rural areas, people are not that comfortable. Exactly. As a result, and for the first time, we bought a motorbike. Yeah. And I never had experience with driving, riding a motorbike in my life. Wow. This was my first time I bought a motorbike and only would ask them to show me where was the clutch. Was the <laughs> <laughs> when I was shown this, I drove the first day, I drove, I drove a motorbike. I used gear one, which is very slow and really rough in terms of the road. But 
with my experience of driving vehicles i just went on figured out how to drive it how to drive the motorbike and i did use my the motorbike throughout the through the study period yeah uh it was a bit challenging because these are areas also with really large thorns over these a specific thorn uh from an invasive plant species called uh Crossopis juliflora locally known as madenge it's more like a nail if it pierces anything and considering that the environment is really hot it'll just pierce through the tires and the tubes and you will have to replace them all the time <laughs> which is a really challenge big challenge but we survived and we did this project and delivered it in full and we are hoping that there will be a next stage for this and we'll try to maybe give farmers more solutions and test things with them because farmers were very receptive about whatever we were bringing to them tough conditions right there Raymond and kudos to you and the team for for launching into these uh, tough conditions and territory uh, to do a good job uh, on that front um let's talk a bit about unlocking local funding we've seen a lot of carbon projects around we've seen talk of you know reducing of our dependency on foreign aid as a country not only in conservation but also in funding other projects especially for developing countries like um uh Kenya uh, what's your take on this if you can find a way to get money from the locals it will be one of the most successful thing you can do in a way that international funding is not as reliable for conservation as we, as previously thought and covid was was one was one way of showing us that was one way of showing us that we needed to find alternative way to fund conservation specifically in Kenya where we have highly depended on tourism to fund our conservation uh, this was a very big challenge but let's just begin with say we are in a conservation area we should encourage local tourism uh we should make it known to the locals that the money they give towards say entrance fee is not specifically for the is not specifically for somebody else to use this is meant for the conservation of species that they are seeing this is meant for those uh, to ensure that whatever species we have now persist in the future if you are really good say in social media and you're good with say crowds you can always go for crowdfunding crowdfundings are a bit tricky but in Kenya where we are used to to giving to towards each other as we call it mchango yeah uh it's something that has been done before and if it can be unlocked then we can have potential of trying we can have potential of funding conservation this can be done in a lot of ways we can have say walks rallies runs things that people can participate in and feel the joy of being part of conservation while they while they're doing it uh but one of the most successful one that i've seen is that uh, i've seen is that conservancies or conservation areas adopting two sides of two side two sides of uh say model two models that can they can they can actually use to conserve wildlife one of it will be on say profitable enterprise for example if you're in conservancy you can operate seed banks uh, we call them grass seed banks 
grass seed banks will mean that you harvest native grasses and use these grass seeds, you sell them to other areas in Kenya, particularly where they are degraded and these areas used to have native grasses. You sell them to those areas and those areas will use these to restore their environment. If we can harvest grass for hay during rainy season, those can also help. If we can harvest grass seeds and supply them to places that they need, that can help. But these have to be a business, some sort of a way that they can make it into a business plan that doesn't affect conservation, doesn't affect conservation, but helps them survive in periods that they have scarcity of funding, then that can work. Thank you so much uh, for sharing those examples with us, Raymond. And Raymond, I'm curious to know, what's your favorite animal and why? Well, that's a hard question specifically. <laughs> <laughs> oh, never thought about my favorite animal so far. <laughs> but I love cats in general. And most recently, I started falling in love with giraffes. I think it's compensating for the height that I don't have. <laughs> <laughs> And they're just I wish people could <laughs> see you live. And <laughs> <laughs> um, um, just they're just majestic animals and the these towering species that we have giants walking among us. And it will be a shame for us to say that we have lost this kind of species because giraffes are becoming endangered and their numbers are reducing day in, day out. If you ever woke up one day, say fifty years and told somebody that they existed this say four 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 five feet tall animal, five meter tall animal that browsed and walked and learned and ran in slow motion. Nobody will believe you. It's much similar to somebody trying to tell us that there was dinosaurs. We can see the skeletons in, in, in say museums and movies, but if you want somebody to imagine that the giraffe ever walked this earth, it would be so hard for people to believe. Certainly agree with you, Raymond. And as we near the completion, of this chat. Uh, Raymond, you exemplify someone who has this inner drive really uh, to provide solutions uh, for co local conservation uh, in Kenya and in Africa in general um, and an optimism. I, I normally say that conservation has to be run by optimists. You have to be optimistic to be in this uh, field. Uh, what can we expect from you um, in the next few years? I'm a peddler of hope. That means that there's always some light at the end of the tunnel, as they say. Uh, so conservation is very uncertain in most cases. And most of the time, the stories that we hear is that people will peddle the, the idea that a species is dying off. True, species is dying off, but at a certain time, we also need to have some really interesting stories, something, something that gives people hope that whatever we're doing is going well. Uh, currently, I've just finished my master's at the University of Nairobi, and uh, I already have some prospects for PhD at the University of Arizona. And if all goes well, uh, I'm looking forward to maybe beginning a research organization that, that uses science to get the best conservation action for these conservation managers that might not have strong scientific backgrounds. We are trying to ensure that if you're doing conservation in any way, and now that I've been here in Mara Elephant, that 
these kind of things are automated, these kind of outputs are automated that this is data-driven conservation and over years we can see what have we been doing right or what have we been doing wrong, how can we change so that we can have a cross-cutting way of just analyzing field data, trying to figure out what is the best course of action, what is the best course of action for these kind of species that we are conserving. Uh, in the next five years, I'm hoping I'll be done with my PhD. I'm doing a PhD. I'll be doing a PhD in uh, biology. I'll be doing a PhD in wildlife management, just to complete my studies, yeah. and then come back to Kenya and try to mentor as many individuals as possible. We need you back, and all the best on that front, Raymond. And thank um, you very much. And where can our listeners uh, connect with you, find you, read some of your work, um, and you know, uh, follow you. So if you want to follow me, uh, I'm on Twitter, uh, there, um, on Twitter, Owino Raymond, at Owino Raymond. I'm on Instagram, the underscore Owino. <laughs> and then uh, just starting on a website, owinoraymond.com. And we can find each other on the streets in Nairobi and other places in the field. <laughs> Depending on wherever you find me, I'm a very open guy and really welcoming to people. Wow. Yes. What a conversation. <laughs> what a guest. Thank you so much, Owino Raymond, for coming to our podcast today. Thank you, Diblex, for having me. This has been fun. Hopefully, this will be helpful for other young conservationists. Asante sana. Asante. Bye. Bye. A huge thank you for taking time to listen to this great conversation. Kindly be sure to leave a review in your favorite podcast listening app for free today. Follow us on social media to get updates on when fresh episodes are released. Yours truly, Diblex. Until next time, stay safe and stay blessed. Kwaheri.